He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not obey the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are indeed so grateful that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. You have given us more than any believer in the history of the planet has ever had in terms of spiritual assets and spiritual enablement through God the Holy Spirit. And Father, you have given us a complete canon of Scripture, complete revelation, and we are to grow by studying it, internalizing it, assimilating it and letting you use it to transform our lives that we may be conformed to the image of Christ. For that is the standard. We are not here, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, to live a life for ourselves. It is not we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And we are to live for him. And we are to do away with that self-centered, self-absorbed arrogance of our sin nature. And that cannot be done by an act of the will, but only by an act of submission to you, trusting in you through the power of God the Holy Spirit, walking by him. And that is our responsibility. And you are the one who transforms us and strengthens us in that spiritual life. Father, as we study today, we come to understand a very important teaching of your word related to Christ's ministry now in this church age. Help us to understand that as a unique feature in the dispensations of the the ages and that we might come to understand its significance for each of us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we come together... Today, we're going to look at this next section. I had started off looking at this yesterday thinking we ought to be able to cover two or three verses here. And as I got into this, the one thing that I realized is that almost every word here is one of those words some of you are more familiar with than others of you. Each word could be a message. I'm reminded that one of the uh, more significant, uh, though he was a strong Calvinist, one of the more significant pastors in England, David uh, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I believe was his name, who wrote a seven-volume commentary that was based on his sermons on Ephesians. I have known others who have taught 500 hours on Ephesians. There is no lack to the depth that we can go into in this magnificent book. And I try not to delve too deeply, although some people may say, well, I don't notice that. (laughs) This is not going to be a 500-hour series. There's tremendous material here, and the implications of it for our spiritual life is just just phenomenal. And what we see in this passage, as we look at verses 19, 20, 21, on down to 23, is Paul rising to a point after his uh, statement of blessing, his 
in the in verses uh, 3 down to 14, and then his prayer. He is raised and elevated in his thought to the glories of God and what he has provided for us, especially in terms of the power that he has made available to us because we are in Christ. This is just one of those many blessings that we have been given at the instant of our salvation. And the thrust of where he goes in verses 20 to 23 is on giving us this example of God's omnipotence to show that if God is so great and powerful that he can bring life where there is death, that he can raise Christ from the dead, give him a new body, and then bring him to heaven and seat him at his right hand, then there's not much he can't do. There's nothing in your life or my life that is too difficult for the omnipotence of God to handle. There's no problem. There's no difficulty. There's no challenge in your life that is too much for the power of God. And there's no situation in your life or my life that God was not aware of in eternity past. And so since God is wiser than any of us and that he is more knowledgeable than any of us and he is more powerful than any of us, he has given us in his word the tools, the skills that we are to master that enable us to surmount these challenges in life on the basis of his power. Sounds like we're studying on Thursday night in the sufficiency of the scriptures, doesn't it? And that's the issue. And this last week, somebody commented to me that they didn't think that that but a small decimal point, 0.001% of growing mature Christians who affirm the inerrancy of Scripture are really serious about the sufficiency of the Scripture. And that's probably true. Because in our day, and it wasn't that different in the ancient world, in our day it is just so incredibly easy to find what I call a sugar substitute. Instead of getting the real truth, it's easy to uh, for people to go to a therapist or to go get drugs or to turn to alcohol or turn to other pleasures and entertainment, whatever, to get around whatever problems they have rather than going through the temptation, that is the testing, and dealing with it on the basis of what God has provided for us and enduring it as uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13 reminds us that there's no temptation, that is no testing that has been given to us, but what is common to man, but God will, with the testing, provide a way to escape that we can endure it. Now, there's a popular distortion of that verse. And you hear it, you hear it sometimes in TV shows. I heard it this week in a TV show. That God's not going to give us more than we can handle. That's not what that verse says. Not at all. What that verse says is that God has given us the tools so that we can endure it. And those tools are what's in his word. He's given us the Holy Spirit and he's given us the word of God. And that's what enables us to endure and to go forward. And this is one of those great passages because it gives us a tremendous illustration of the greatness, the immensity of God's strength and his power, and that if he can do this, then there's not anything in our lives that we face that he can't also also handle. There's no temptation from our sin nature that is too great for the power of God and the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to enable us to overcome that temptation. That doesn't mean it's going to go away like that, but it will take time and it takes growth, and we are strengthened by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. There's no circumstance that uh, involves your children or your parents or your spouse 
or the people at work or the need for a employment. There's nothing in any circumstance in life that's too great for the omnipotence of God. So what we see in these two passages is an example that we need to truly trust in the power of God, and he will sustain us, he will provide for us, and he will strengthen us no matter what we, what we face. So as we've seen in the previous few verses, as Paul is praying continuously for the Ephesian believers, he's praying a similar prayer in Colossians chapter 1 for the Colossian believers and for many others. He prays for one thing, that we might have a more intimate knowledge and relationship with God. That's what's indicated by the first that, as I pointed out in verse 17, that he may give to us the Spirit. That should be a capital S, the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who is characterized by, by providing wisdom and for revealing the truth to us. And the focal point of that is in the knowledge of God. And that word for knowledge indicates a more full, complete, more intimate knowledge of God, moving beyond facts to where we're living a closer relationship with him day by day. He reminds us in the beginning of verse 18 that the eyes of our understanding have already been enlightened. That happened at regeneration, as we saw in a study of 1 Corinthians 2, and that the focal point of this prayer then is in these next three what clauses, that we may know, and I pointed out that the word for know there is a different word from uh, knowing the knowledge of him in verse uh, verse 17. That is epinosis. This is from oida. Oida, when it's applied to humans, indicates a knowledge that becomes the basis for further knowledge. So there's always this growth taking place. And so it's important to focus on knowledge in these areas because they become the, the steps to advancing in our spiritual life and growing. And so he says that you may know what is the hope of his calling, Second, that you may know what is the wealth of the glory of his inheritance. We're his inheritance, and that as, as the body of Christ grows and matures, when we are glorified with him, uh, that is going to bring glory to God uh, when we are with him in heaven. And then third, that you may know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. So that first part, dealing with knowing what is the hope of his calling, hope has to do with a confident expectation. So that word looks forward. Calling looks back to when we respond to the invitation to believe in Christ. That's what calling means. So when we responded, there was a message that when we died, we would go to be with the Lord face to face with him, and that's our hope. So it looks to the past. We responded with a future confidence, a future conviction. And so we saw passages like Colossians 1.5 and Titus 1.2 that focus on that hope, that future expectation, the hope that is laid up for us in heaven that we heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. So the gospel focuses on that future confidence, that uh, confident expectation, Looking to the future, Titus 1-2 expresses this as the hope of eternal life. And that this is related to this calling. And what we see in this opening prayer is how many times these ideas come back later in Ephesians, that we're to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called, that invitation to salvation we responded to, as the call that looks at us as those who've responded, who have a new life in Christ, so there's a new standard for our for our lifestyle. There's a new standard for our conduct. There's a new standard for the way in which we uh, we live. We walk with the Lord. In Ephesians four four, Paul says, "There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called." And here he uses that phrase again: "In one hope of your calling." That that hope of our calling focuses us on us to live today in light 
of eternity. And then the third phrase, uh, the second phrase rather focused on what is the wealth of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That's future. That when the body of Christ is gathered together with the Lord at the rapture and we are before the throne of God, there is a, a glory that we bring to God because of all that he has done for us. And then in verse 19, he goes on to say, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. And I pointed out that he uses this word power, which is uh, dunamis. He then uses the word uh, iskus for strength and power again. And he uses the word, I don't have it in a slide, but the word for working has to do with uh, power as well. And so there's four terms there. They're just piled up on top of each other because the power of God goes beyond anything that we can truly grasp. It is his, the immensity the, of his power. It's infinite. There's nothing greater than the power of God. And then he gives us an example when we get to verse 20. And this is such a great passage. It refers to things that are concepts that are not that user-friendly for a lot of believers. And there's not a lot of teaching on some of these. Now, for most of you, you've heard me teach through this, but there's new folks here that haven't heard me, and you can go back to some more in-depth studies uh, in Hebrews and 1 Corinthians uh, I did a series at one point on the ascension in session of Christ, which gets into a lot more detail, and I'm not going to go into that kind of a detail here, but I do want to hit the high points because it's essential to understand these. this phrase. He talks about at the end of verse 19, let me put it here, according to the working of his mighty power, which he, so the which connects it back to verse 19, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So when we look at this, we see that the example for understanding God's power is what he did at the resurrection, ascension, and the conclusion of that in the session of Christ. Now there's a word that's not that user-friendly. It is uh, from the Latin word sessionum, which means to be seated, and that uh, was a word that entered into theology uh, after the Protestant Reformation and really emphasizes his current position as being seated at the right hand of God, and we'll get into that a little bit to summarize it. But we have to understand the session That's where Daniel 7 comes in because we see that before the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, the Ancient of Days is God the Father. And at this point in the future, at the end of the tribulation, the Son of Man is going to come to the Ancient of Days and ask for the kingdom. That tells you that while he is seated at the right hand of the Father, he is not king. He has not been given the kingdom yet. It does not occur until after uh, the tribulation has gone by, and it is at that time that God the Father will give to him the kingdom, and all dominion and all power is given to him, which is what is pictured here when we get into verse 21, that he's given that uh, at this ascension he is raised above all principality and power and might and dominion, and that relates to the uh, angelic host, primarily the evil, uh, the demons and and Satan. But that he's seated at at the right hand of the Father so that authority that he's being given is not exercised yet. He's waiting until the Father gives it to him. So this is the example. And as we think about that, it's just should just amaze us that that power is available to us. And and very few of us ever really rely on the omnipotence of God to get us through 
just getting up and getting dressed in the morning. Let's bring it down to those mundane things. Everything we do in life needs to be something we rely on the Father for. It shouldn't be that, oh, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to take a shower and brush my teeth and eat my breakfast and do whatever you do in the morning. But everything is supposed to be walking with the Lord. It's all part of our uh, of our spiritual life. So it starts off with this word, which. In the box on the left, it's, I have the, uh, the Greek. It is simply a, a relative pronoun. But what's important is it goes back to what is before. It goes back to something that is stated in verse 19. Reason that's important, there's a certain number of people who think the prayer's over with and that this is more of a doxological statement in verses 20 to 23. That is a phrase that is just praying to God, but it, it, it is grammatically connected. So the 20 to 23, the end of the chapter, are all connected and come out of uh, what is said in verse 19. So that which is a, a feminine uh, feminine article. Now that's important because a feminine definite art, uh, or relative pronoun has to refer back to a feminine noun. It's in, in a um, in language there has to be an affinity between the pronouns and the nouns. They have to be in the same gender. Wouldn't we have problems if all of a sudden grammar got all gender confused? Oh, then we'd have English, right? So anyhow, this refers back to a previous noun. Well, when we look at verse 19, where it talks about uh, according to the working of his mighty power, it looks in English like the which could refer to the mighty power. But if you look at Iscus, Iscus is the might of his power. That's a feminine noun, and that might be a source of reference. But the word power is a, a neuter, and so that can't be the, the antecedent for the uh, relative pronoun in verse 20. But the participle, or excuse me, the, the other noun, the working, the work of his power, is energeia, which is a feminine noun. And that really fits. It's, uh, it fits because it goes back to, let me go back to 19, according to the working, or it should be the work because it's a noun. It's not Working in English is as a genitive or participle, and that doesn't fit. So it should be according to the work. Okay, so that's the noun the work of his power. And that really makes sense because when you look at the, the structure here in verse, verse 20, verse 19 talks about the work of his mighty power. When you look at verse 20, which he worked in Christ Jesus, that word, that the Greek word for worked is the cognate verb for the noun. That makes it clear. I see a fog. You've got a relative pronoun that agrees in gender with a word in the previous phrase that is a cognate of the verb that follows it. That makes it clear it's all connected together. It's talking about this this exercise of God's power that was exercised in the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension and session at the right hand of the Father. So this is what he, what he's working, what he worked uh, at the time of the resurrection, when he raised him from the dead. And this is the verb egairo, which is a word you almost always find associated with resurrection passages going back and talking about Christ being raised from the dead. Uh, It is usually passive uh, because uh, in other passages, it's usually a passive passive sense because 
Christ receives the action of being raised. It's active here because it's talking about God the Father raising him. The Father raises Christ. He doesn't raise himself from the dead. And he was, this passage says, he's raised from the dead, and he is secondly seated at his right hand in the heavenly places. And this is the verb kathizo, which means to sit or set or to place some something in a particular location. So this word seated is a word that indicates that Christ is in a particular position. From other passages, we understand more about this. We'll look at these a little later on. But he is seated at the right hand. Now, the it's interesting. And when we were in Psalm 89 on uh, Tuesday nights going through for several weeks, we went through Psalm 89. One of the things that is brought out in that psalm, it talks about the hand of God and the right hand of God. When you have this, these idioms in the Old Testament, the arm of God, the hand of God, that indicates his power. It's, talk, it's a metaphor for, for God's ability to do things. But when it talks about the right hand of God, it's also emphasizing that power, but there's something that's added to it. Because in the ancient world, when someone was seated at the right hand of, a, of someone in authority, then they are given delegated authority from the one next to whom they are sitting. So when the son is at the right hand of the father, that's a position of power, it's a position of authority, but he is seated. He is not portrayed as being active at this point other than he is the head of the body. And that's where this passage goes to in verse 23, or 22 and 23, that he is the head, which is a term for authority. He is the authority over all things to the church, which is his body. So he is seated at the right hand of the Father, a position of power and a position of, of authority. So what we read here, it, this is the power, the, might, the strength of God's power that he worked in Christ, that is, uh, in terms of, of Christ's resurrection, ascension, and session, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So this is another use of this phrase, in the heavenlies, as it was translated in the King James. Uh, this relates to the sphere of the third heaven, which is the domain of the, of the throne of God. So at this point, what I want to do is stop and take a look at the ascension and session of Christ. The ascension is described for us in Acts 1, 9 through 11. And this is his last meeting with the disciples. And we're told in Acts 1, they, they go to the Mount of Olives, just as the Shekinah glory in, is described by uh, Ezekiel, when the Shekinah left the temple in five, roughly 586 B.C., or before that, the Shekinah first leaves the Holy of Holies. Ezekiel sees it moving out to the, to the doorway of the temple, then moving across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, and then going up to heaven. Jesus is following that same pattern. There's a connection there. And he is going to give his parting instructions, reminding them once again that they have been commissioned to take the gospel into the whole world. But until that event occurs when the Spirit, Holy Spirit comes, they are to wait in Jerusalem. That's Acts 1.8, to wait here until the Spirit comes. So in verse 9, we see what happens after that. He said, Luke writes, now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up. That's the ascension. He was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Now, here's a question for you. Most of you are pretty jaded at language like this because you've seen the Mercury astronauts uh, 
be launched and go up into outer space. You've seen airplanes take off. You've been on airplanes that have taken off. You've seen uh, missiles launch. You've seen rockets launch. But the apostles had never seen anything like this. And Jesus just took off. He just goes straight up. And I always loved this picture that I found years ago. They're just looking at Jesus, and if you can't see it well, you just have two feet at the top center of the picture as Jesus is blasting off into heaven, as it were. And they're just stunned. And while they sit there, well, while they sit there, an angel appears to them and says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now, that's a really good, interesting statement because it tells us that Jesus is coming back, and it tells us how Jesus is coming back in the same way that he left. So you're going to have this physical bodily return descent to the earth when he, when he returns. That's the the ascension of Christ. And he goes through the heavens, as the writer of Hebrews says. He goes through the heavens. He goes through the universe, just in a split second of thought, and goes to the right hand of the Father in heaven. Now, as we look at this topic, and I'm not going to go through all of this material, but I want to survey it so that you can read it for a little background information. This pulls together basically from a lot of passages, but there's four key passages that you should look at. And I need to rearrange the order on this slide as I was thinking about it as I was driving this this morning. Is really the first the first the way in which you should order this is first read Psalm eighty nine. We've read that. That is a meditation on the Davidic covenant and a prayer that God would be faithful to the covenant that he made and that he would preserve uh, the line of David. So that takes us to the beginning. Then you have Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, you have the, the father saying to the son, sit here at my right hand. Then you have Psalm 132, or rather Psalm 2 and Psalm 132, and Psalm 2 focuses on uh, the return of the anointed, the Lord's anointed, and he defeats the kings of, of the earth. And then Daniel 7, really the last one you should read is Psalm 2, and then Daniel 7 focuses on the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days to receive the kingdom. So the order there would be to uh, first read Psalm 89, and then Psalm 110, and then Psalm 132, and then Daniel, um, excuse me, Daniel, Daniel 7, Psalm 2 at the end, Psalm 89, Psalm 110, Psalm 132, Psalm 2, and then Psalm, I mean, then Daniel 7 in that order. So those are the four key Psalms that are the background for all of this. And second, we have to understand these terms, Son of Man and Son of God, Son of David and King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Each term represents something different. So in Hebrew idiom and a lot of the idioms in the other ancient Near Eastern languages, if you had certain characteristics, then you would be described as a son of that. So if you were a fool, you would be called a son of a fool. If you were a uh, a murderer, you're called the son of a murderer. If you're disruptive and, and destructive, then you're a son of Belial. And usually those aren't translated that way into English. They're more or less interpreted. So if you're talking about somebody and emphasizing their humanity, then they would be called the son of man. So the son of man becomes a title for the Messiah. And it comes from Daniel chapter 7. Son of Man is used in Ezekiel, but that's used because God is addressing Ezekiel as a man and calls him Son of Man. It's not used in a messianic way in Ezekiel, but it is in Daniel chapter 7. The term Son of God refers to Jesus in his deity. He exhibits all of the characteristics of deity, 
And so to call him the Son of God is the same as calling him God, identifying him as undiminished deity. Son of David indicates his descent, that he is the one to whom Psalm 2 refers, using the term son, connecting it with uh, Psalm 89 and the Davidic covenant. And then the phrase king of kings and lord of lords is not used and are not seen in application to Jesus until you get to uh, Revelation chapter 19 and he is returning to the earth. So you see this chronology that takes place looking at different prophetic passages where Jesus ascends, he is seated at the Father's right hand during the church age where he is ministering as the high priest for the church and he is the head of the church and then he is at the end of the tribulation he is going to request of the father the kingdom the kingdom is given to him and then he returns to the earth at the second coming to destroy the armies of the antichrist and the false prophet and to establish his kingdom so that does not happen until until the future Third, we see that the Davidic covenant is the foundation for understanding all of these things that we've just talked about. That's why one of the reasons why I spent so much time earlier in the year going through Psalm 89 in the Davidic covenant is because it is foundational to understanding all of these issues related to, that people are so confused about today, all these issues related to the kingdom and these choruses people sing about Jesus as king now, they get all confused because there's a lack of understanding of the, the future plan of God. So it all goes back to the Davidic uh, covenant. And then last, we learn from Scripture that Jesus is now serving as our high priest it's not a high priest according to uh, Aaron, but according to the Melchizedekian priesthood. Melchizedek was a priest king of Salem, an early name for Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He was Gentile, not Jewish, and he is both priest and king. So this is a type of Christ priesthood, He did not come from the tribe of Levi, so he could not be a Levitical priest, but he is a priest according to the order of of Melchizedek. So we see what the... uh, We're not going to look at what the accomplishments of the ascension were. First of all, the ascension validated and certified Christ's prophecy that he would go to the Father. That's important. There were so many prophecies... As I'm reading through a chronological uh, reading plan right now, I'm reading through the Gospels, uh, all, all of the Gospels together at one time, and it's impressive how many times Jesus made prophetic statements that were fulfilled in his lifetime, but how many times he made the prophecy that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he'd be arrested, he'd be betrayed, uh, he would be... Uh, abused, and he would be crucified. And the disciples just acted like they never heard it. It never got very far. So he makes these, uh, makes these prophecies, and in John 14, 28, this is, remember, right after they have had the uh, Passover, the Seder, between the, the upper room and going to the Mount of Olives, and the Garden of Gethsemane, he's teaching them along the way. In John fourteen twenty eight, he says, You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So he is prophesying that with his death, he will ascend to heaven. Second point is something I alluded to already, that the ascension is pictured with passive voice verbs because Jesus is brought to heaven by the power of God. That's Paul's emphasis. The power of God to bring Jesus physically, bodily into heaven, where it's witnessed by the disciples as eyewitnesses, the 11, is a historical fact. And so that understanding that is a basis for us understanding how the power of God 
can strengthen and enable us in our spiritual life. So the ascension indicates that the Father has accepted and received his Son back to glory in heaven. Verses for that are Mark 16, 19, Luke 24, 51, Acts 1, 2, 9, 11, and 22. So Acts 1 is a central passage on the ascension. Third, the ascension is pictured as a rapture. It is a type of the rapture. There are several different raptures, actually, in heaven. You have Jesus is the word that is used in Revelation 12:5 that her child is caught up to God and his throne. That's a picture of the ascension. The word caught up is the Greek word harpazo, which is the word that's used for the rapture in First Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, uh, 13 through 18. So the ascension is a type. And you have other ascensions in Scripture. You have, for example, the ascension of the two witnesses in Revelation um, Revelation 11, and uh, you have others where they're taken up to heaven. Uh, Stephen is taken up to heaven. And so all of that pictures what will happen to the church at the end of the church age, that we will be taken in a moment, in a blink of an eye, and we will all be transformed into our resurrection bodies. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up, that's our Pazzo, caught up together with him, in the clouds. Fourth, we see that the ascension completes Christ's uh, strategic victory in the angelic conflict. Now, the, strate- the difference between strategy and tactics is strategy is the overall plan. Tactics is what you do in a specific situation. So the strategy was to defeat Satan at the cross when Christ would be crucified as the seed of the woman, and that is... Uh, predicted in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So first of all, you have the crucifixion victory over the penalty of sin. Christ paid the penalty for sin. He separated uh, judicially from the Father so that he bears our sin in his own body on the cross. That is uh, his victory over the penalty of sin. Second, his resurrection was a victory over the physical consequences of sin. Death is a consequence of the penalty of spiritual death. And then third, his ascension is his victory over Satan and the demonic armies. This is where the next verse goes in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 21, that he uh, uh, is seated at the right hand of the heavenly places, verse 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So that is the third element. So these three elements are the totality of Christ's strategic victory in the angelic conflict. What we see in the ascension under point five is that the ascension elevated a man, a human being. Now, he's in hypostatic union, but he's still human. He will always be human. He is undiminished deity united with true humanity forever and ever. And now at the right hand of the Father is a human being. He is seated there in a position of authority. And so this goes to passages that talk about man being created initially a little lower than the angels, but then they are elevated above that. So this shows the value of the human race, the value of mankind is and God's special plan for them, that there is a human being seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is there at the command post of the universe. He's interceding for us as part of his role as our high priest, and he doesn't miss anything. He's not busy with somebody over in Afghanistan and getting them out of a tight fix in an ambush while you're over here suffering with some rebellious teenager. God can handle it all at the same time. He is the original multitasker, an infinite multitasker. In... Acts chapter 2, verses 32 through 34, as Peter is preaching the day of Pentecost, he says, This Jesus God raised up again, 
to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So there we see the delegation of, uh, of roles in the, in the Godhead. God the Father uh, gives the Holy Spirit to the Son. The Son received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, who he then pours out on the church, which has happened on the day of Pentecost. And then he quotes from the Old Testament, says, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, this is Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, the first Lord refers to God the Father, the second to God the Son. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So he is in a position of power and authority. Six, we see that the ascension marks the beginning of Christ's high priestly ministry. That's his role. Christ came. He is prophet, priest, and king. In the first advent, he primarily functioned as prophet. Now he is at the right hand of the Father functioning as priest, and when he returns, he will be king. There's a nice progress there. Seventh is in the ascension, the Messiah is the forerunner into heaven. He is the first fruit of the resurrection, and he is the first to ascend to heaven. Uh, Hebrews 6.20, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So he's not just a high priest for the church age, he's a high priest forever. And he is our high priest and the head of the body. Six, Jesus presents, Jesus' present position in heaven marks the position of the church age believers in the heavenlies. Now, one of the reasons I'm spending time on this today is because in just a few weeks, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. And that, and verses 5 and 6 says, even when we were dead in our, in the trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that develops this whole teaching on the ascension of Christ. We are, he rose, God the Father's power raised him from the dead, Uh, brought him to heaven in the ascension, seated him at the right hand of the Father, and we, by our position in Christ, are raised and seated in Christ. So Ephesians 1, 20 to 20 through directly provides background for understanding Ephesians 2, 5, and 6. The ninth point is that the ascension demonstrates the manner of Christ's future second coming. You just hit the rewind button. He goes up at the ascension, and he comes back at the second advent to the earth. That's why it's not the rapture. The rapture is Christ coming in the clouds. But the second coming, he's coming to the earth based on Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 9. He comes to, or, or 11, he comes to the earth. Verse 10, the ascension transferred Old Testament saints from paradise to heaven. They were in the compartment of Sheol, known as paradise or Abraham's bosom, and Christ takes Old Testament saints to heaven at the time of the ascension, Ephesians 4, 9, and 10. And then the 11th point is that Jesus Christ had to ascend so that he could send the Holy Spirit to perform the following post-salvation ministries in the life of the church-age believer. When he sends the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, you have the first baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. That is the mark of the church age. That is why we say the church age began on the day of Pentecost. This is unique. Nobody before Pentecost of 33 was baptized by the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit, the restrainer, is removed at the rapture, There will be no baptism by the Spirit in tribulation saints. Tribulation focuses on Israel. 
The baptism by the Spirit unites us in Christ. So those believers in the tribulation period are not part of the church. So it's that baptism by the Holy Spirit that is unique and distinct for this church age. And we are indwelt by the Spirit. Every single one of us always permanently are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit who makes a residence for us for the abiding of Christ. And third, the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit as part of his role as indwelling. When we are walking by the Spirit, he fills us with his word and then also at the instant of salvation, he distributes spiritual gifts. All of that had to, uh, the, excuse me, the, uh, the ascension had to happen first before any of those things could take place. In 12th, last point, the ascension marks the beginning of the waiting period for the kingdom while a new people is formed related to Jesus' title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is what is taking place now, is a new people. It's not replacing Israel, but it is a second group that is being formed today that are part of, that will be uh, the bride of Christ. So this is what is all alluded to here. All of that illustrates the power of God, And so there's no situation in life we can't handle. Nothing touches the power that God has and that he is willing to use on our behalf with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, be reminded of your grace, your power, the greatness of all of your plan, and how this has been foretold in the Old Testament, how it looks forward to its future culmination at the second coming of Christ. And all of these passages speak of your your incredible power that is now available to us to handle any and every situation. And, Father, we know that we have to learn about you. We have to grow in our relationship with you, our knowledge of you, so that we can learn to trust in you and to rely upon your power and not... Uh, various uh, techniques or gimmicks that are uh, used by many people just to try to make life work without you. And, Father, we need to be challenged to truly depend upon you. Now, Father, too, we pray that for anyone listening that maybe they've never trusted Christ, maybe they're uncertain of their eternal destiny. The Scripture is very clear that our only hope is to trust in you and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who died on the cross for our sin, and that by his death he paid the penalty for all mankind. The issue for us now is simply to believe in him, to trust in him, uh, to believe that he died for our sins, and that by trusting in him we have eternal life which can never be taken from us. So, Father, we pray that anyone listening who's never truly understood the gospel before would come to understand it, and trust in Christ as Savior. And, Father, we ask that you would keep what we have learned today in our minds. May it uh, be something we think about during the week in different ways that we can apply this in the problems and challenges we face in life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.